0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Devin Olson, and we'll be answering your most important questions on lock-style fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your questions. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and your email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. and It's the property of Knowledge Group, Inc., Doing Businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Devin Olson about lock-style fly fishing. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to bigskyinflatables.com. Again, bigskyinflatables.com. Before we introduce Devin, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Devin's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We will also be giving away a copy of Devin's new DVD, Modern Nymphing Elevated, Beyond the Basics. Courtesy of Tactical Fly Fisher, and you can see more about what Devin has to offer in the way of his other DVDs and books and so forth on TacticalFlyFisher.com. So here's how you can win this great new DVD: you must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show, and the question will be something that Devin and I talk about during the show. You must submit your answer along with your name and your location using that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your uh, take notes, use your best typing skills, and hopefully you'll win Devin's new DVD. Our guest tonight is Devin Olson. Devin started fly fishing at age nine. He will never forget his first day when he caught a cutthroat on an ant in the first meadow of the famed Slough Creek in, in Yellowstone on a hand-me-down fiberglass 7-weight. Though he'd been fishing with hardware since he was a toddler, that day started an addiction to fly fishing, that he can't seem to shake. When he fished against Lance Egan and Ryan Barnes and the former Outdoor Life Network's Fly Fishing Masters in 2004, he knew he had to find a way to compete in the sport he loved. It was serendipitous that he worked with both these anglers a year later after they had made Fly Fishing Team USA. He fished in his first regional and made the team himself in 2006. The ensuing years have been more educational than he could ever imagine and as hopelessly obsessed with fly fishing today as he's ever been. The obsession has brought dedication, which has helped him to have competitive success domestically and abroad, and he's won, uh, I think, eight consecutive berths as an angler in fly fishing team in the USA. And in the prior years in Bosnia, he was incredibly fortunate to finish with individual bronze medals and even more fortunate to have been part of the squad that won the first team medal, a silver for USA, at a World Fly Fishing Championship. So fly fishing competitions have exposed him to tactics and techniques from incredible teammates and fellow fly anglers from across the globe. Away from competitive fishing, fish have sculpted his professional life as well. He holds a bachelor's degree in ecology and a master's degree in fishery science. He currently works for the Nez Pierce Tribe Department of Fisheries Resource Management as a salmon and steelhead biologist. Well, Devin, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio.
1: Uh, thanks, Roger. It's uh, it's good to be here.
0: Good, good. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, coming into our fall fly fishing season, huh, which is always really nice. And I know your part yeah, of the country good, is much like mine. So, <laughs> uh, A
1: good time to talk about lakes since uh, yeah, probably the best time on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, very fine time to be fishing in the Rockies. Um The, um, we've got, we're going to be talking about lock style fishing tonight, and we've got a lot of great questions here, it's not something I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, they they might have just said, oh lock style fly fishing is just like any other kind of lake fishing, but it's really not, so why don't you start out by just kind of briefly describing what lock style fishing is, and, and we'll get into the details of it here as we go along.
1: So you could ask, uh, that, and depending upon the angler's background, you'd get a very different answer. <laughs> uh, okay. traditionally lock style fishing, yeah, traditionally lock style fishing, it started, uh, in the British Isles, you know, back in the 1800s, maybe even earlier. I'd have to look into a little bit of the details of that, and I'm sure some, if you have some British listeners, they might, uh, try and crucify me after this for botching all this, because it's near and dear to them. But uh, essentially, the difference between lock-style fishing and other forms of fly fishing that you would typically find on most of the lakes and reservoirs in the United States is that we fish from a drifting boat and drifting perpendicular to the wind, so broadside to the wind, and you're casting downwind. So you're instead of letting uh, your flies dangle behind you and basically trolling on a wind drift, which lots of people will do,
0: it's the other way.
1: You're actually casting out the front of the boat, downwind, and retrieving back into your drift. And that, in a nutshell, if you wanted to get down to the absolute basics, is pretty much what fly fishing or lock-style fly fishing is.
0: Okay, great. No, that's very good. Um, and why is it so effective compared to other types of lake fishing?
1: Well, think about it for for just a, a moment. Um, Really, if you go out and you go to most of the lakes in the western United States or around the country that are popular with fly anglers, you're going to see pretty much one of three things. Um, you're going to see anglers who are anchored up or just holding themselves in place with their fins, uh, casting out a you know, strike indicator rig with some midges or, or nymphs or something like that below it, and uh, just waiting for their, their bobber to go down. Or you'll see, uh, you know, float tubers or pontoon boats just kicking around, trolling their flies uh, on sinking lines. Or um, what I would say is probably the, the distant third uh, these days is uh, casting and re- retrieving their flies. But those techniques, the casting and retrieving and the, the indicator type techniques, they basically are sedentary or stationary for the most part. Uh, you're sitting in one position and you're you know, fishing one area and you're relying on the fish to come to you. So after your first few presentations in the area, you've pretty much showed your flies to a lot of the fish that might be there and you'll get a quick few reactions but then it often slows down and so you either have to wait for more fish to come in or you have to move. And then on the flip side, if you're trolling your flies, okay, well, you're covering new ground all the time, but you're also running the boat over the fish that you're trying to catch before your flies are shown to them. And so many times the fish can be spooked out of the way of the boat if when you're trolling flies. So lock-style fly fishing kind of takes the, the benefits of both of those. Um, you get to... You don't spook fish because you're casting out ahead of the boat and you're showing your flies to the fish before the boat gets there, but you're also constantly covering new territory. So it's a—I almost think of it almost like you're floating in a drift boat down a river and you're pounding the banks with streamers. You're constantly covering new bank and yeah. finding new aggressive fish, and so it, it has that same effect, but it's in a lake. And that's why I think, to me, not only is it necessarily more effective in a lot of Uh, times but for me it's just a lot more enjoyable because it's a much more active form of lake fishing and so many of the people that I talk to that have kind of a bad idea about lake fishing and don't enjoy it they think it's boring basically because you're just sitting there all day and you know not doing much compared to covering water in a river but lock style fishing gives you the elements of covering water like you would in a river but puts it on a lake and makes it a lot more interesting
0: Yeah kind of like when you're drifting a river you always like to be the fly fisher in the bow, right? Getting that first. Yeah, stand. you want
1: to be the, the first guy down. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same kind yeah. of principles. Yeah, um, and is, uh, I did uh, read a few notes about lock style being a competitive fishing method or sport as well. Have you been sure. involved in that? Well, I mean, all
1: of the, the lake sessions that we do from boats during tournaments, they're fished lock style. So uh, certainly... Uh, I've done lots and lots of competitive lock style fishing, both here domestically and at world championships. But really the roots of competitive lockstyle fishing and lockstyle fishing in general all come from the British Isles and there's a very big competition scene there for lock style. It's very popular. I mean their competitive scene there is so much bigger than anything we have here. It's yeah it's amazing.
0: So in the World Championships, uh, so that is part of the championship is doing lock-style fishing. I didn't know that. that
1: Well, at least if if there's going to be a boat session, it'll be a drifting boat session, a lock-style session. Uh, This year in Italy, it's a bank session, so we're just fishing from the bank on a high alpine lake. So this year will not be a lock-style session, but most years uh, we have a lock-style session involved. And in Tasmania next year... I think there's at least going to be three and maybe four sessions that will be lock-style lake fishing sessions.
0: Yeah, I hear they have some nice lakes down there, yeah.
1: Mm, they good, do, good. yeah.
0: Yeah, um, so let's talk about equipment, uh, because um, you tend to use a different rod, right, than you normally would for stream fishing or even for other lake fishing? The way lake. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I use the same rods. For any style of okay. fishing, for the most part. But uh, normally, I mean, if you were to ask, you know, someone uh, what they would do on a the river, they had the standard reply for you know most fly shops on the river would be, oh, take a nine foot five weight as your first rod, right? Well, if you're right. going to go lock style fishing, and at least if you're in the United States, you're going to want a ten foot six weight or a ten foot seven weight as your main lock style rod. I tend to prefer a ten foot six weight. For most of the fishing that I do, uh, the 10-foot-7 weight is kind of the standard rod over in the U.K., mainly because they're usually fishing reservoirs and lakes uh, a lot of times for stock trout where they're stocked large. They're not, you know, stocked at 8 or 10 inches like a lot of times we have here or fingerling size and then grown to the, you know, more catchable size. So they prefer, you know, the 7-weight over there both for chucking long line and, uh, you know, really heavy sinking lines, but also just landing on average large size fish. I like the six-weight over here because a lot of times when we get in tournaments, we have, uh, we'll have some tournaments where we get to catch large fish, but a lot of times we're put on some lake where there's a lot of small stock fish, and if you go all the way to that seven-weight, a lot of the times the rod is so stiff that you, you do what we call bouncing fish, where those little fish, are so quick in their head shakes and stuff during the fight that they'll, they'll bounce off a lot of times during the fight. So if you can have a little bit more give in the rod with the six-weight, then you tend to pin a, a few more of them and get them all the way to the net. And uh, the six-weight's also a little more delicate if you get into a situation where you've got some fish rising and you want to either crawl some nymphs under the surface or, you know, maybe fish a dry fly or something. to them.
0: Now, normally you use a longer rod for uh, your European nymphing, don't you?
1: Yep. So I mean, really, these days. Can you days, use
0: that rod, or is it di- different action you're looking for?
1: Uh, well, I mean, they're different rods. So m- most of the time, I'm using a ten, ten and a half foot three weight for my my euro nymphing. Um, okay. So and, lighter rod, yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, you could probably use that rod if you were only going to fish dry flies, or only going to fish lightly weighted or unweighted nymphs. Uh, if that was your plan, you know, and if you maybe if you were expecting not a ton of wind or wind or or fairly small yeah. fish or something but most of the time from the boat I like the extra gun, the extra power of that, that 10 foot 6 weight and since I like to have one rod that can throw a whole cadre of lines from floating all the way down to a type 7 or 8 or 9 uh, you can't really get that in a lightweight rod um, yeah now, if you're the type of person, especially if you don't have to abide by competition rules, like in competition, we're only allowed one rod rigged at a time in the boat. Um, we can have lots on the river, but in the boat, we can only have one. And so that's why I settle on, you know, that rod, because it does yeah. a lot of everything lock style wise. But if I were to go out and have multiple rods in the boat, lock style fishing, I might have, you know, a 10 foot 5 weight for kind of light. Light work, uh, nymphs and drives, and then I might have a 10'7 weight for my sinking line work. So it just okay. kind of depends on if you're the type that wants to have one rod to do them all or have multiple rods to really fit whatever niche, you know, you're trying to go after.
0: Right. And um, so you, you mentioned the lines uh, there just a minute ago. When you're doing the lock style, what are you primarily using? Are you using floating lines and long leaders or sinking lines, or, or do you mix it up? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes would be the answer to that.
1: So uh, if, you, if you peered into the boat of your typical competitive, like serious competitive angler, you're going to find a real bag that is stuffed full of lots of spools and lots of lines. I have a real bag right now that I take with me
0: on
1: uh, any of my lock style sessions that's probably at least got 20 lines in it. And sometimes two dozen. Um, oh, really? And cool. so, yeah, I, I mean, it'll have everything from floating lines to midge tips to 12-foot midge tips to slow, medium, and fast intermediate to type 3, type 5, type 7, type 9, and then also what they call sweep lines, which... If you look into uh, sinking lines out there these days, there's basically two types of sinking lines. You can have what most people refer to as a density compensated line, where the tip of the line or the you know the, the front end of the line is uh, more dense than the rear of the line, and that way as they sink, uh, the drag on, on the front end of the line is basically compensated for by that higher density, so the line is able to sink in a straight line. Um, but then the reverse has been found to be also very effective at times where you get kind of a sweeping or arcing motion underwater for your retrieve. And so there are several companies that, that uh, have designed sweep or seek lines, as uh, like Cortland calls them, where you have actually an intentionally more dense or faster sinking line in the, the belly or the rear of the line and a slower sinking tip so that you have that arcing shape. So depending upon the day, I may use all sorts of different types of sinking lines, but the main thing is to have at least enough of an array that you can cover the column. If you were to have one line, though, and only one line, then you would probably choose the floater and because, you know, if you go to some tungsten beads flies, you can still get deep with a floater, whereas, you know, it's pretty hard to keep a type 7 line near the surface if there's fish rising or up. <laughs> so
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, that, that's the big thing there.
0: Yeah, and when you're doing competition lock style fly fishing, is it just you have to adhere to the lock style, the drifting motion, or if there's a hatch on, can you catch fish any way you want and, and go to a dry? I'm just curious.
1: Oh, you can go to a dry. You're just still going to do it from a drifting boat.
0: Yeah, um, but that's so a, really the, really no restriction on how you're fishing. It's just it's going to be a drifting.
1: No, boat. not not at all. Not at all. In fact, yeah. uh, we had that happen at nationals this year in my last session. We had a big calabeta thatch that came off in a back bay, and there were fish just going berserk. And so I I tried probably three or four different rigs during that session uh, while the fish were rising before I finally dialed in one that really worked. And that, that included, you know, multiple lines, multiple different types of rigs, and then one style was definitely better than the rest. So really, you can do whatever you want within You know, the general framework of the other rules as long as your boat is drifting. And then you have, you have essentially a quadrant that you can fish out of. So you typically have a boat partner and you can fish from the tip of the boat to the middle of the boat. So you've got like 45 degrees there, or no, sorry, 90 degrees worth of, of, you know, the circle or the compass that you get to fish within. Once your flies get out of that 90 degrees, then you're either trolling if they're behind the boat or you're into your partner's you know, sector when your flies are illegal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Well, let's take a quick break here, and then uh, when we come back, we'll we'll dig more into a little bit more about the lines, leaders, you know, uh, and so forth. So uh, stick with me, and we'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations and their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They're well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jackraval, yellowfin, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Devin Olson about lock-style fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com. And use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Devin, I always ask my guests uh, at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? And I know you've got, uh, you've been at work writing and filming. Uh, Tell us about what you've got going.
1: Yeah, so back in April we had, uh, many of the listeners might have uh, listened to the first two podcasts that I did with you, which were about European nymphing styles. And so we had our first film, uh, instructional film, Modern Nymphing, uh, European-Inspired Techniques, that came out back in January of 2017. And then we did a follow-up, kind of a sequel, diving a little deeper and taking you beyond kind of that basic foundational level. And that came out uh, in April of this year, and it's called Modern Nymphing Elevated, Beyond the Basics. And so that, that's been really popular Um so far, uh, and uh, a lot of people have enjoyed the pair of them and, and kind of the progression that they got out of seeing the second one after uh, having the first one. And then uh, over the last winter, I finished uh, my book manuscript, so we've just been going through the publishing process over the last few months here, and uh, as far as I know, things are on target for a release of my book, Tactical Fly Fishing. Uh, lessons from competition for all anglers, and that will be due out uh, in January, hopefully at the Denver Fly Fishing Show next year.
0: Oh, that would be nice, then, yeah, start off the show yeah. season. Yeah, mm-hmm. great. And then well, on top
1: of that, uh, next Tuesday I leave for the World Championships. So.
0: Oh, next Tuesday. So, yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah, so it's uh, lots of be going on in right now. Italy? Is it northern yeah, Italy? Yeah, northern Italy. It's uh, in the, the Trento or Trentino region up in the Dolomites this year.
0: Well, drink some fine wine for me, would you? <laughs> Love that Italian sure there'll be wine. Some
1: pos- there'll probably be some pasta involved, too. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, you can't miss over there. Yeah. Um, well, great. Great. Well, good luck with that uh, competition. And um, and also, uh, why don't you uh, tell everybody your website again so people can find out where they can
1: get yeah. the DVDs. Uh, and go forth. You can find us. Uh, you can find both the DVDs, and we have a, I have a whole fly shop full of kind of competitively inspired gear and fly tying stuff and flies at tacticalflyfisher.com.
0: Okay, great, tacticalflyfisher.com. Terrific. All right, good. Um, so back to the lines and so forth. Um, you, uh, and I'm kind of getting into presentation here, but just because it's making me think of it now, you know, you said, oh, you have all these lines. Um when you know, uh, in a lake situation like we we're talking about, when do you start switching things up? Um, I mean, one of the things in in lakes is that, that troubles many of us is where are those damn fish? You know, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, <laughs> yep. how deep are they, and and so forth. And that's always a quandary. Is you know, where do I go? And uh, switching up lines, you know, in the stream, we're always adding another split shot, something to get a, a little bit deeper. Uh, but changing out lines can make major differences. I would think on, you know, your presentation and where you're at. So how do how you do make you make all the difference? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, of catching or not catching, right? So how do you, how, yeah. how what's your thinking process there?
1: Okay, so this question right here could take up an entire podcast all on its own. This is, <laughs> okay. this, is this is probably the if there's anything tonight that we talk about that I probably won't do justice but is probably one of the most important topics is this wow. right here. Yeah. So Well we better talk um, about it then. <laughs> yeah. So so let me let me run through maybe like a quick couple of things that I think about before I even pick a line to begin with. First and most important, I'm gonna look at water temperature. So if the water is, you know, really cold and it's early spring, most of the time or, or, or late fall, either one, uh, each lake is different. So, But a lot of times I'm going to be looking either for sun-warmed shallows, where the first kind of uh, warmth or the last warmth of the year is able to warm just that, that really shallow littoral zone a little bit more than the rest of the lake during the heat of the day. And So that if you're fishing that type of water, no matter what, you're going to be using some sort of shallow presentation, either a floating line or some sort of intermediate simply because anything more than that is you're going to be dragging the bottom or, or wasting your time, unless you're fishing like a floating fly type presentation with a booby or something like that, which we may get to down the road in this podcast. But as, uh, the, the other option during that, that time of year, if it's really cold, if you have a lake that has a lot of zooplankton in it, uh, specifically big, big populations of Daphnia, um, that's a really core part of the, the base of the food chain for feeding trout. And in um, more fertile lakes, a lot of times early in the season or late in the season when the kind of hatches for the year are over with or not begun yet, the fish are focused on daphnia. So you will often find them out suspended over deep water. And you might be out over 50 or 100 feet of water in some lakes, but the fish are somewhere between 5 and 15 feet down. And so then, you know, you're gonna. I would start high in that situation and work my way down. But so then water temperature, if you start moving up into that mid-range, mid like the prime uh, territory for fish in, uh, like, the 53, 54-degree range up to, you know, 63, uh, 64, then you can still have fish up shallow, but you can also have fish starting to get deep. So then I'm going to look at other variables, like uh, what's the sun angle? Is it really bright? Is it cloudy? Are there hatches? Is it really windy or is it calm? And so let me run you through a few things to think about there. If it's really windy, most of the time the fish are more willing to come up towards the surface and more willing to eat aggressively right below the surface. So if it's really windy and the temperatures are good, I will often try a shallower line first, like a floater, Uh, well, not usually a floater if it's really windy, more like an intermediate down to like a type 3. If it's really windy but the temperatures are higher, uh, mid-60s, and you know the fish are down deep, then I'm probably going to be going towards, like, a, a Type 5 or a Type 7 because I need to get to depth quickly, especially with that wind, because you're not going to – if you're drifting from a boat, you don't have as long to let your flies sink as you would, you know, from a stationary position. Um, right. yeah. if, the, if the surface is calm, though – the fish often will drop down unless they have some sort of hatch that is, you know, keeping a whole bunch of emerging insects near the surface where they're vulnerable that makes it worth their effort and their risk going towards the surface. So if you got rising fish or something, then it's probably a wise idea to stay shallow. But a lot of times when you have the combination especially of a bright high sun and a flat, calm lake, I'm going to be starting to look deeper. If you think about it, one of the the biggest risks in, in lakes for fish is avian predators, so pelicans, cormorants, grebes, and ospreys. And so on a flat, calm day, they feel more at risk from those, uh, you know, sorts of issues than they would on a really windy day, and so they're often going to be deeper. And so a lot of times on a flat, calm day, less I Really think there's fish in the surface because of hatches or something. Then I'm going to start working my way down, and I might start with a type three and move to a type five, or do a type seven and see how the you know the catch rate changes as I go. And hopefully, uh, you know, I guess right the first time. But if a lot of times a fly change or a line change, one way or the other, after you make your initial kind of guess and assessment, will hopefully get you a better idea of uh, which way to go. Um, so those are a few of the variables that I look, uh, that I Mm -hmm. think through, but, um, I would say overall that temperature is the most important. So if it's, you know, if it's comfortable for the fish to be shallow temperature wise, if it's, you know, below the, the mid sixties standpoint, then it's probably best to fish, you know, a shallow to medium depth situation for most people simply because, especially if you're casting distance limited, you're going to have a hard time getting deeper anyway, um, which is what a lot of people struggle with when they first start lock style fishing until they've really worked on their distance ability. But that distance ability later, if, if you can work on that, then you're going to be able to fish those deep lines to, you know, fish that are 15, 20, sometimes even 25 feet down if you have the right conditions. But really it's just experience and knowing a little bit about the background of trout anatomy and physiology and, and their reaction to temperature and then finding the part in the column that is at the absolute apex of that metabolic rate. So if you can find somewhere in the column that's in that 52 to 63 degree range or 53 to 63 degree range or in the middle of that even even better so, you know, 58 to 60, then that's your best shot for having the most active fish. Uh, so, so then you just have to find the line up? to get you there.
0: You carry around a thermometer and measure the temperature at different depths? To
1: um, So that's a hard thing to do, mainly just because unless you have a thermometer that catches water at a depth, like a one that actually fills it, or you have something like a scientific instrument, like a YSI, a Yellow Springs instrument, uh, something I used in my limnology work back in grad school a lot, uh, you actually can drop a probe to different depths there and know where you're at and then measure the yeah. temperature. But most uh, anglers don't have, you know, that type of equipment uh, around, so you just kind of have to basically guess <laughs> based on the surface temperature and the clarity of the water and the yeah. you know the sun and everything. You can make an educated guess, and then once if you know what what uh, lines get you to what depth, then you can you know go from from that starting point and then start either counting down or changing lines or changing weights of flies, all sorts of little tiny adjustments that can get you into different parts of the column.
0: Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's and helpful to that, have that, a that master's was like a degree. Ten answer.
1: Yeah. So Roger, that was a ten minute answer for what what could have been a
0: two hour conversation. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say it, it it pays to have a master's degree in fishery science too, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> to understand well, the the ecology and biology and everything that's happening in these lakes.
1: Especially uh, given that my my master's degree, I did do a lake project for my master's degree. So I have a little bit more background in limnology than some folks might, which has helped a lot, I would say, in lake fishing for me, just knowing kind of how things progress throughout the season and, you know, where you might find things. But even with that, it's amazing how many times I still get surprised when I'm out on the lake yeah. and, and I'll do a, do a lot of searching <laughs> with things that I wouldn't expect.
0: One thing that uh, that you really well you mentioned sun, but uh, one of the things that I notice uh, fishing lakes, especially I have a lake right down the hill from my house here, um, and and being on other lakes is you know the time of day you know especially mm-hmm. evening going towards evening where the fish will come up and feed on you know emerging insects and so forth just below the surface so. Um, so that's another determining factor, I guess. If you are out on the lake later in the day, that you may be fishing more shallow because the fish are coming up as well. Is, do I have that right? And the
1: same is the same is true in the you know the morning. So right. if you get out there early in the day, then a lot of times you're going to be finding fish in the shallows early, and then as soon as you start to see that sun angle getting higher, 10, 11 o'clock, a lot of times then. A lot of times, all of a sudden, you, you stop catching fish or it slows down, and you're wondering what's going on, and what has often happened is that uh, the fish are reacting to that higher sun, and they've they've gone down themselves, mainly for safety, and so then yeah, you've got to right. make changes to follow suit.
0: Yeah, yeah. The um, Oh, I've got a question that came in before we move on, because it's kind of a follow-up question. We're talking about rods. Chaz in Utah says, do you use 10-foot rods because of reach, safety, uh et cetera, because of the sitting position re- uh, requires competitive regs? It's kind of a broken sentence there. But he's wanting to know why the 10-foot rods. What's, what are the benefits <coughs> of that?
1: So shout-out to uh, to Chaz or Charles Card, <laughs> as most people, uh, most people would know him. Uh, we actually did some lock style fishing back in April together before national, so. Uh, but the longer rod is for a couple of reasons. One, you are sitting in the boat, and if you, especially if you're a, a lake fisherman and you're fishing in a float tube or something like that where you're really low to the water, then you should be ditching your nine foot rods right this second and, and getting to longer rods anyway. Simply because that longer rod is going to keep your back cast higher. And so if you're the type of angler who in the past has struggled with your fly line or your flies hitting the water on your back cast, then that longer rod is going to give you more reach on your back cast up in the air. Um, The 10-foot rod, because of that, also helps clear the flies over the boat. So especially when you're sitting in a boat with a partner and you're both fishing the same way, if you have someone in the the left side of the boat who's a right-handed caster Uh, you're going to be casting over your partner the whole day. And so being able to keep those flies over their head is very helpful because we all like to avoid flies hitting us in the face or in the back of the head, at least I do. So that extra length there is, is helpful for keeping the flies higher. And then most people just have an easier time casting further with that longer rod as well. The longer lever, you can generate more power and, Aim your target higher, and you'll shoot more line. And then lastly, there's a question which we'll probably talk about later. I saw it on the, on the sheet beforehand, talking about strategies for last-second takes. So there's a, a method called the hang, which happens right at the end of your retrieve where you lift your flies up to kind of stimulate an escape response from the fish where they jump into predatory mode and if you have a longer rod, you can do the hang further from the boat. And so you're less yeah. likely to spook fish by keeping your flies further away when you do that hang. Uh,
0: Phil McCartney wrote in online here asking the importance of casting in this lock style method. So, and you had kind of alluded to it a, a few minutes ago about uh, being able to cast long distance. Uh, mm-hmm. And going back to that, so... The distance is more for the depth as well as the length of the retrieve? Is, is that the important factor? Yeah, so
1: longer casts can help you do a lot of things when it comes to lox-style fishing. Number one, you can get to the fish first. If you're drifting into things and you can cast further than your boat partner, you can show your flies to more fish before they show their flies to the fish, so that, that can help you. Um, then, and so your retrieve is also longer. You can cover more parts of the lake as you fan back and forth with your casts, if you can uh, cast longer. Third, if you have rising fish, and a lot of times, I can't tell you how many times there's fish that rise that are just right on the edge of of casting distance for, for me, and um, and I can throw pretty decently long cast, and if I hadn't, you know, if I didn't have that ability, there there would be a lot of fish that would just be out of range when I have fish that are rising. And then lastly, the longer you can cast, the uh, longer your retrieve time and your your sink time can be, and the deeper you, you can get your flies when you need to, when you know, when there's a situation where deep uh, retrieves and deep flies pay off.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, I think. Uh, let me check something here. Oh, yeah. Phil had another he question. He wanted to know if the the big brown in the photo that we have on the website, did you get that lock style fishing?
1: I did. Yep. You did. Yeah. Oh. We, yep. We were. Uh, yeah. We were fishing a lake in Wyoming. I'm actually on the bank in the photo because. Uh, we were fishing close to the bank when it happened in a very- on a windy day, and by the time that I landed the fish, the boat was almost beached so so I just hopped out of the the boat with the fish in the net and in the water to take the photo <laughs> but yeah that was uh that was a lock style fishing
0: there you go, Phil. Go do it <laughs> all right um so let 's talk about um you know your your leader and how you rig up your flies, um, because I know there's seems to be a traditional way of doing that in, in lock style fishing. Is that can you kind of go into that?
1: Sure. So traditionally they did lots of different things. Uh, when lock style first began, uh, they mainly used either horsehair braided lines or just. Kind of intermediate by default lines that because they didn't float very well, uh, and and old old you know Scottish style wet flies and things like that, and they would have a three or a four fly cast as they call them or a team of flies that were spaced four to five feet apart, and a lot of times they would historically of, they would make fairly short casts and just kind of dapple their flies in the surface with that, a really long rod. I mean. A lot of the traditional lock style rods were 11, 12 feet long, but that was kind of short line lock style fishing early on. But so that's the traditional way. But the way that most competitors will do it this way is really these these days is really simple. Uh, I'll give you a breakdown on what I do, and you'll you'll find lots of similar answers. Uh, I typically start with like three three to four feet of just 10 pound maxima chameleon. And I use that as a little bit of a butt section. And while it does give a little bit of stiffness to help aid in turnover, what really I have that, that piece there for on my leader is when you are repeatedly stripping your leader in to land fish, if you have tip it all the way to the top of your leader, then that upper portion of your, you know, your leader goes through your guides and it ends up pigtailing. And so that can do some funny things to your retrieve in the water, like make your flies spin and that. So the, the chameleon being that the harder material, the stiffer material, it doesn't do that when I'm landing fish. But I have usually about six feet, maybe seven feet to my first fly. And then I have at least five feet in between my next two flies. And after that, that maximum chameleon, I just usually have straight 3x or 4x dip it. So you end up with a leader that's like 18 to 20 feet long, and that sounds pretty crazy to most people, and it, and it might be if you're new to it and, or if you struggle kind of with the casting end of things. And so if that's the case, then start with just one fly or, or two flies and, you know, a shorter rig that way. But the fly distance apart is really important. Uh, a lot of people think that by moving their flies closer together, it'll make their leader easier to cast. I've actually found it's the opposite, Most people that I've seen do that end up compounding their problems, and especially if they're fishing weighted flies, their flies get so close together that they end up kind of combining and landing in a big chunk on top of each other instead of turning over in line like a plop, plop, plop. Their three flies will combine to land in one plop, and then when they do that, they tend to tangle a lot. Uh, So I do really like to have my flies far apart. I also find that when you have your flies at least that far apart, then the fish can kind of make decisions about them independently. So a lot of times you might, um, if you're in a clear lake and you can watch fish come and follow your retrieve all the way to the boat, a lot of times they might be following your top dropper. And you can watch them turn off of that fly as it ascends toward the surface and they'll start to go back down, but as they go back down, they'll turn around, and they might see that middle dropper, and so you might be able to get them on that middle dropper, or they might swim all the way down, and then all of a sudden, you know, as they swim 10 feet away, they see that point fly out of their corner of their vision, and they go, and they turn, and they eat that. So having your fly spaced, you know, a long ways apart helps not only with, Uh, your casting, but also just presenting your flies individually or independently to the fish and giving them a choice about each one instead of them looking hokey. I always laugh about the suggestions I see about, you know, dropping a fly 18 inches behind your giant bugger on a lake because I don't see the fish having, you know, separate thoughts about the bugger from the nymph or the other bugger behind it. You get two buggers that are 18 inches apart and it looks pretty hokey in my mind. Um, Whereas spreading them apart gives you a better chance to convince kind of wary fish. Uh, But that's the basic rig. If I'm fishing only two flies, then I'll space my flies even further apart. I might do like eight feet apart. Uh, But if you're starting lock style fishing, I would suggest start with one fly or two flies. Um, But the you want to have a fairly flat leader. You don't want to taper to it uh, because that flat leader just mainly tip it. It will get you a better, straighter connection to your flies where you have better strike detection. With coils that often happen or memory that happen in tapered leaders, sometimes that coil or that memory has to get straightened out first before you're going to feel a take, so you get better strike detection with the flat leader. You also um, get less drag when it sinks, so that that thick butt section on the tapered leader does the same thing that it would if you had your leader Thicker leader, trying to do some sort of European nymphing style. Once you get that leader under the water, it's going to slow down your sink rate, and so a tapered leader will keep your sinking line from sinking as fast as it could. And so, really, that flat leader is is the best way to go. Uh, and then, the lastly, the one other thing I wanted to mention there, I told you that I have six or seven feet to my first fly when I'm when I'm fishing this way, and the main reason for that, a lot of the Uh, The Brits that you'll hear recommendations from, they'll have, like, five feet to their first fly. I like it just a little bit longer to make my line changes easier. So on the end of each of my fly lines for lakes, I have, like, a 10-inch little butt section just of 12-pound maxima. And on the end of that, I have a tippet ring. And so then when I'm going to make a fly change or, sorry, a line change on the lake, I'll reel my line all the way in until – my top fly hits my tip-top on my rod. And when that happens, that tippet ring on my fly line is usually just a couple of guides up the rod, and I can chop my leader at that tippet ring, reel up the line that I'm taking off, put the line that I'm uh, putting on, just thread it through the first couple of guides there, attach that uh, leader with a, you know, clinch knot or whatever to that tippet ring, and then when I pull my flies back out, it threads the rod for me so that i don't have to cut all my flies off put my you know take my leader off put it on a different line rethread it so many people dread changing their lines because it's such a process but when you do it that way you can do a line change in about a minute minute and a half and so i like having that distance because if it's really short then you have to thread your line through like half the rod and it gets a little awkward in the boat
0: yeah yeah okay very good stuff uh When you tie your flies on, are you tying them in line or are you tying them on tags, or use tippet rings? Always on tags. Always on tags. tags. Um, Are you using strike indicators at any time for this kind of of fishing?
1: Uh, You can, and um, you, you know, yeah. I mean, if you're fishing your fly static, like you're. Uh, doing a chronomid rig or something like that, you certainly can fish that way. and, and indeed, I've fished dry dropper from the boat quite a few times. Um, and when fish are when it's really flat calm and there's a lot of midges around or they're getting wary to kind of fast retrieved flies or something, then that can be a good way to do it. So you can fish an indicator from the boat, but the thing that you'll find uh, is that you just can't let that cast sit as long because you're constantly covering water. So if you're the type of person that likes to fish an indicator rig and make a cast and let it sit there until the fish find your flies and just, you know, let it stay static with the occasional twitch, then you're only going to be able to let it sit for, you know, 30 seconds to a minute before you've drifted into your indicator, essentially. Yeah. The other downfall there is that if you are if you like to fish a caramid rig where you have your flies, you know, set at a certain depth right off the bottom, as you're drifting along, you're going to be covering different depths. And so you may have to set your flies shallow so that you don't make casts that uh, end up in the weeds, you know, if you're just letting them sit there static. So, yes, you can fish an indicator, but it's more common uh, when loxel fishing to be casting and retrieving flies, even if that means slowly retrieving.
0: Yeah, yeah, Okay. Um, Ed Constantini in, uh, in Wisconsin wrote in and asked, uh, what adjustments to your leader, if any, do you do? Do you make uh, depending on the depth of the water you are fishing?
1: So, Ed, um, I don't really adjust my leader most of the time. The only time when I would make an adjustment to the leader, if I know I'm going to be fishing only the shallows all day long, and, and by shallows I mean like less than seven feet deep, and I know that I'm going to be fishing nymphs, just crawling them, my like chronomids or something during a coronamid hatch or, or really slow moving calbatus or damsels or something. Then I would probably just go to two flies and I would have them spaced closer together, like three to four feet apart and a short, you know, pretty short distance to my first fly too, just so that when I'm retrieving my flies, they'll stay off the bottom. But most of the time, in typical circumstances I don't really change my leader much at all uh, throughout a day of of lock saw fishing what I change to uh, you know make adjustments for depth is my line or my fly weight and so you can it's just like in nymph uh, fishing in a river you can change your fly weight you know go from unweighted to tungsten or from one tungsten bead size to the next tungsten bead size or even from unweighted to brass if you want to Really get you know your first installment of weight, and then besides that, you can change the sink rate or the sink uh, design basically of uh, your fly line to make those adjustments for weight right. or for, okay. for sink rate.
0: What about uh, tell us about the types of flies you like to use and and their their placement if you're using like a three fly rig. Fly line.
1: Yeah, so. This is – the placement thing is constantly evolving, and uh, it's one thing I still like to read articles in the the British kind of magazine world to get their ideas on what constitutes like a middle dropper fly or a point fly or a top dropper fly because I always find myself uh, evaluating this as well. But if I fish a three-fly rig, I will probably – go with something like this, something in up top that is uh, meant to catch fish's eyes. Like if you're retrieving flies fairly quickly, then – well, actually, before we go there, let me back up for just a second, and you're going to – and I'll just discuss the flies that I that I have in the boxes. So um, I have two main Stillwater boxes. They're both giant – envelope boxes so like eight by ten clipboards or or envelopes that are double-sided that I have foam on both sides and they're just packed with flies and one of them is dedicated almost entirely to uh, bugger style flies or beach style flies with the occasional zonker or other streamer pattern in there and on one and in that that box one side is either unweighted or brass uh, beads and then the other side is all tungsten beads and then the other box that I have is split between uh, nymphs, both unweighted and tungsten beaded. And that can be nymphs from like doll box to crunchers to, you know, just uh, soft tackle zoos and pheasant tails all the way to imitative coronamid type patterns or calabatus nymphs, damsel nymphs, things like that. The other thing that's in that box is what um, a lot of Brits would refer to as stockulars. So, Flies that are trashy and flashy, um, blobs, uh, booby blobs, uh, sparklers, uh, really bright, flashy attractor style patterns that are meant to grab fish's attention, not necessarily look like anything that is actual food. Um, And so between those two boxes, I I have you know just about anything that I would want for most things. I also will usually. Take a dry fly box with me out on the on the lake as well, just in case I run into some rising fish. Uh, so that that's you know those are the flies that I have. As far as how I rig up the flies, um, there's a lot of a lot of ways you can do that. But if I'm using a pulling rig, and a pulling rig is, in a competitive parlance would be. Uh, a rig that you're typically fishing on a sinking line, so not usually a, uh, on a floating or a midge tip line, and you're going to pull your flies and or retrieve them, basically. So you're going to cast and retrieve them, and you could do anything from a little hand twist, fairly slow retrieve, to a roly-poly or exceptionally fast retrieve where those flies are moving as fast as they can go or in between. And so in those cases, a lot of times I'll fish fish um, Either a couple of bugger style patterns, like one top dropper, one point, uh, one on the point, and then something drab or smaller in the middle. So that if I've got a fish following that top dropper that isn't convinced by it and it turns away, it'll see, it'll first have a shot to take something smaller and maybe more imitative, something like a snatcher pattern or a cruncher or a Dahlbach. And then my point fly will usually be another. You know, lure or, or uh, bugger style or leech style pattern. Uh, the other thing that I might do is um, a blob or something really flashy and, and crazy on the, the top dropper there again to pull fish to the area as your flies are, are going through the column and so you get a fish that will follow that top dropper but if it doesn't like it so if it stops and the pursuit of your rig then all of a sudden two more flies go past it that hopefully are a little more convincing that uh that might make it eat and then other than that if i'm in the nymph world then a lot of times i'll fish some sort of emerging style pattern with some soft tackle or whatever on the top dropper so it looks like a, a little bit like a, a you know a nymph that's about in its last stages of emergence and then i'll have some things like doll box or chironomids or whatever on the um the and the middle dropper below that are kind of more like insects that are in the earlier stages uh, of just ascending through the column. And then the last kind of caveat to uh, this answer would be when you have a floating style pattern. So if you have a foam arced blob or a booby, which have foam built into the rig, then sometimes you'll fish that on the point. And you'll basically, those flies are there to either do one of a couple things, kind of emphasize that sweeping motion through the water that I talked about when you fish a a seek or a sweep line. So that arcing motion that you sometimes you'll get where you get your flies descending down early in the retrieve and then you get a really sharp ascent at the end of your retrieve. So when fish are, are wanting that sharp ascent, that's a lot of times a good way to do it. Or if you're fishing shallow, um, and that session I was talking about in Nationals where we had that calbata hatch come off one of the things I tried was a washing line is what the Brits would refer to it as where I had a booby on the point and then I had unweighted calabatus and uh, nymphs on the droppers and I had a tip line and that booby keeps the rest of your leader floating high um, so it'll hold your nymphs off the bottom when you're casting and retrieving within shallows and you want to be able to keep your whole rig out of the moss or the weeds a floating fly on the point in that washing line style will do that for you. And you can fish pretty slow still uh, and keep your flies you know, off the bottom, even in water that's only a couple of feet deep.
0: Okay, good. Um, Ed in, in Weston, Massachusetts, was asking about booby flies online here. So, Ed, I hope you got some insights into the use of those here because um, yeah, Devin talked quite a bit about it here. Um, some other quick questions here. Phil wrote in on the Internet, uh, do you use fish streamers on um, very long leaders with three flies? Is that one of the flies you might use?
1: Sure. I mean, well, I mean, a lot of people would consider buggers or leeches as streamer patterns, and they, they would certainly yeah. get fished. I also, um, so on my local, kind of my favorite local reservoir here, on Strawberry Reservoir in Utah, uh, the fish get pretty locked into eating chubs and shiners, and so I, I have some different, you know, minnow-type patterns that I fish um, lots of times, and uh, so, you know, I might go fish a zonker or, or some sort of sparkle minnow or whatever like that, and I'll definitely still fish it on that same leader. If it, if it gets really heavily weighted, then a lot of people will find it harder to cast, but yeah. in that situation you can you can always fish. If you have a really heavily weighted fly and you're having a hard time casting it, fish it closer to your fly line. because uh, if you have that flat leader the further the longer your leader gets, the harder it's going to be to throw that yeah. heavily weighted fly on the point.
0: Yeah. Another few questions about flies here. Alan Bull in Midland, Michigan. The three three questions are do you throw buggers all year long?
1: Or is that <laughs> Hi big Al. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, uh, I do throw – yeah, yeah, Al's a a great guy who's who's in the competitive circuit. Uh, So, yes, um, I do throw buggers all year round, but I find that they are at their peak of effectiveness a lot of times in the spring and the fall um, when you have kind of the least uh, hatch activity.
0: Okay. And when do you throw natural bugs, right before the hatch?
1: Uh, right before the hatch or um, really during any kind of consistent hatch windows. Uh, a lot of times uh, during late spring or early summer chironomid hatches, um, sometimes by the time you see chironomids popping out or finally see some fish rising or whatever, a lot of times those chironomids have been you know, in the hatching process for an hour at that point, maybe you know, an hour and a half. And so if you wait all the way until you see the hatch progressing, and you may have missed an hour or so of really good, you know, nymphing, chronomid fishing before that. So if if I'm really expecting a hatch, then I might fish nymphs all morning long and just, you know, see what happens. And if it's not going well, then you can always change.
0: And he also asks, um, do you throw your river flies a lot, a.k.a. junk flies?
1: Uh, so I I do throw kind of variations of river flies a lot, but I mean, you know, lots of peasant tails and doll box are just variations of peasant tails and stuff that you have on the river. But junk flies, like Alan's talking about, um, squirmy wormies are a really common one that, that a lot of people refer to. And yes, they do get fished on lakes. There's a lot of people that I think rely on them too much, uh, because, at times, they can really work well on lakes, and then at other times, they don't do it darn bit of good for you. So, so I have to fly that a lot of times I'll cycle in and out on my rig uh, once or twice throughout the day for 10, 15 minutes, and normally within a short amount of time, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether it's going to work or not, because if it's going to work, it'll often work right away, and if it's not going to work... Um, you'll know that pretty quick, too, and you can kind of abandon it and go to searching through the rest of your arsenal.
0: Okay, one more fly question. Pete Gramp in Pottstown, Pennsylvania writes, uh, I'm a very avid fly tire and have been seeking fly patterns in a traditional Irish or Scottish lock style for quite some time now. My searches have come up pretty empty. Can you offer some resources for some more traditional patterns used for Irish, Scottish, or British lock fishing? So,
1: Pete, um, yeah, Pete, I'll admit that I am a little bit – I'm not terribly well-versed in a lot of the traditional wet flies, mainly just because they aren't used a whole lot on most of the comp scene these days, except for the people that are doing competitions specifically in the Irish uh, wild brown trout locks and, like, whales and things like that. Um, They're just not as popular these days than kind of more the rainbow trout scene. But – From what I have seen personally, there's uh, a book called The Lockfisher's Bible that has some patterns like that in it, um, written by Stan Healy. There's also Bob Church's Guide to the Champions Patterns, a book that I used to have. I think I got rid of it right before my last move. (laughs) And that had kind of a mix of some of the older style patterns like that, but also... What were some of the emerging competition style patterns back? I think that book was written in the 90s, so it's it's uh, later now or old now. The you can also if you just search lock style, that specific phrase or lock style flies online, you'll actually come up with quite a bit. Uh, you can also look at some of. The kind of British fly manufacturers like Pulling Mill or Fario fly just bounce around on their sites for some ideas. You might not get pattern recipes that way, but you can at least, you know, see pictures and try and imitate them. And then lastly, there are some UK magazines, Trout Fisherman, and I'm going to have to, I think it's Fly Fishing and Fly Tying is one of them, uh, that that one especially has. Um, kind of a more traditional um, set of articles that that comes out a lot. They have some of the more contemporary stuff, but they also look at a lot of the traditional history of uh, British angling, both on chalk streams as well as on the lock style scene. And so that's one that Charles Jardine writes for a lot. So if you find that magazine... Um, and you find some articles from him, then you'll know you're in the right place.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, good. Let me take a quick break here, Devin, and when we come back, we'll talk uh, our last segment here about boats and and retrieves. Uh, So um, give me another 30 seconds. We'll be right back and get back into it. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placentia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permanente Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, and then C-A-Y-E, flyfishinglodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Devin Olson about lock-style fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Devin a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and we'll try to squeeze it in here before the night's end. Okay, um, Devin, uh, we're going to have to kind of roll through some of this stuff pretty quickly, um, given the time element, but um, let's talk about boats First of all, any particular kind of boat that works best for drifting lakes?
1: Yeah. So um, historically, uh, in the UK, they use a style of boat called a clinker-style boat, and that's kind of the traditional lock-style boat. If you go and rent a boat, especially on really famous lakes like Loch Leven or Lake of Menteith, uh, some of those, then you're going to find a, a clinker-style boat. Um, unfortunately, those are, you know, not really available here in the states. So I find that usually V-hole boats work best, and a lot of times the larger the boat you can get, the better it'll work simply because it won't get tossed around and turned as easily by the wind. So if you have a really gusty day, the smaller your boat is, the easier it's going to turn, and that can be kind of a pain when you're in the middle of a cast or retrieve and all of a sudden the boat switches direction. So a really, you know, a larger boat is nicer, and if you go to uh, – Leven in Scotland, they have 21-foot pine boats from the 1800s that are so amazing. Wow. Uh, but uh, you can use any sort of boat for this. The main thing you're going to need, though, like, uh, is what we're going to get to next, and that's a drogue.
0: Yeah. Now, what about uh, – I noticed one of the videos you sent me the other day, um, uh, guys were out in a drift boat on the last Yeah, so that's a
1: pretty common craft here. Uh, There's a lot of the lake, the competitive guys, um, because they have a drift boat for river fishing, they also use it for their lake fishing. I would say drift boats um, aren't ideal for lock-style fishing, mainly, well, especially like high sides or just uh, traditional drift boats. Skiffs are usually better because they have level gunwales that catch wind more evenly, but if you're in kind of a more, you know, a dory-style drift boat, then you get that kind of banana shape, and usually the front end of the boat catches more wind than the rear, and so that can make mm-hmm. your drift a little bit hokey, uh, can crab the boat back and forth or make it more to one side. But that being said, you can do some things with your just to set them up so that your, that your drift boat does drift straighter and slower, especially if you're not having to adhere to competition rules <laughs> and you can – you know, mess around with having, like, multiple drogues or something in, in placement, and then you can definitely make just about any boat work just fine.
0: Why don't you, for people that don't know what a drogue is, um, or like some people call them sea anchors, we've used them for yep. running mm-hmm. rivers, um, but, um, yeah, why don't you talk about what that is and, and how it's constructed?
1: So, um, picture, it's funny, I was uh, driving on the freeway today and there's there was this, Big giant party of parasailers in the air at one spot it's called the Point of the Mountain uh, here. And basically, a drogue is an underwater parasail or parachute. And um, there's two types. If you get the traditional British type that they use for competitions, it's basically just a rectangle of ripstop nylon that's got four ropes coming off the corners that are connected by a ring. And then you just have one rope that then connects to your boat. And that's the type that I use on my boat most of the time and what I'll do with my boat on those ropes is I'll put some spring clamps on them, some kind of heavy tension spring clamps, and then I can move them back and forth on my gunwale a lot depending upon uh, what I need to do on the, those ropes to make the, the boat drift straightest depending upon the day. But the other type of drogue you can get, uh, which is probably more widely known here in the States, is the cone-shaped version or the sea anchor which you're talking about. Uh, if you do get that type, don't take the recommended like size of boat per drogue size on those. You want to get basically the biggest cone drogue you can get because you're trying to slow the boat down to actually fish. Most sea anchors they they use as kind of like an emergency type system where if you get you know, if you're on a lifeboat or something out on open water and you just want to avoid slamming into rocks really quick during a storm or something, you'll toss out a little sea anchor to slow your boat down or Sometimes walleye guys will use it to troll with, basically wind drift troll with, and they just use a smaller one to slow their troll down. But here you want to keep your boat crawling as close to a crawl as possible, and so then you want a really big cone-shaped drogue if you're going to do that.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, and the whole idea is to keep that uh, boat perpendicular into the, uh, into the wind. Um,
1: and mm-hmm. Perpendicular and drifting as slowly as possible
0: right uh-huh. right and then it,
1: if you get really good at managing it like if you put some spring clamps on your drogue and you're, you're you know, you do some messing around with it you can actually make your boat drift to the you know left or right as well during your drift so yeah. you can stay stay off the shore or or hug the shore or drift into it off of it whatever you want you can actually change a little bit of the way that you drift simply by uh, messing around with the drogue
0: what about using float tubes other personal watercraft for for lock-style fishing?
1: So when I started lock-style fishing, all I had was a pontoon boat, and it certainly worked. Um, the I guess there's two, you know, issues with pontoon boats and float tubes first in general. You're just limited in the amount of water you can cover. You know? So I got a boat. Uh, this uh, this year specifically a little bit larger and with a 25 horse so that when I go up to Strawberry, I can cover a lot more of the lake since it's such a massive lake and I want to be able to move around if the specific area I choose isn't a very good area uh, to begin with. So, you know, you're always limited in, in the amount of water you can cover with a float tube or a pontoon boat. And then when you're drifting, um, and especially if you find an area where there's a lot of fish and you want to circle back around and restart that drift, just going to take you longer to restart a drift simply because you know you can't move as fast. The other issue with the float tube or the pontoon boat is that when you do when you fish the hang where you bring your flies all the way up to the boat with the rod tip at the end of the retrieve, um, sometimes if you have your fins down there kicking, and you're then a lot of times that'll give a last second alert to those fish that they don't necessarily have when you're fishing only from uh, you know a boat where you don't have anything hanging down. Right, so right. a little bit of an issue right. there, but uh, really, yeah. I mean, you absolutely can use you know use what you have. Don't like
0: yeah you know, yeah. If you if you want to um, if
1: you want to try lock bow fishing, go get a drogue, and and try it. But and then if you really like it, then maybe you'll consider you know getting a dedicated craft for it down the road.
0: Uh, Mark in Arizona wants to know: Are you using depth finders?
1: Yeah. Um, you can't in competition. We're not allowed to do that. But in my own, ah. you know, fishing on lakes, I, I have a depth finder all the time. Okay. Um, just a, And it's just a Lorance that came with my boat when I bought it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Nothing okay. fancy. Really, Really, I, I want a couple things off of my, my fish finder. I want to know the depth and what the depth change has been recently and the, the thermometer. And if I have those two things and I'm pretty happy with it, if I have a reasonable expectation of it actually you know finding fish for me as well, then that's a helpful thing, but a lot of times, especially when you're drifting uh, and the fish are shallow, if the fish are less than ten feet deep or you know even twelve or thirteen if it's a clear like um, and you're drifting over them by the time the boat gets there, that fish is gone anyway, so a lot of times you're not yeah. gonna see fish unless they're down unless yeah. they're down deep and so. Yeah. Depth finders for actually finding fish, I find, are a little bit overhyped, at least from a fly fishing perspective.
0: Yeah. Pascal in uh, Montreal, Quebec, um, he says, on what criteria do you select the drift trajectory of your boat when fishing lock style?
1: So um, it kind of depends upon what part of the lake you're fishing. If you are really, if you're fishing open water to suspended fish, then your trajectory can kind of be wherever the wind wants to take you because a lot of times you're just finding random pods of fish drifting through open water that are eating zooplankton or, you know, some emerging insects or something. But a lot of times uh, if you find a drop-off or really you're hugging the shore and you find a lot of fish are are hugging drop-offs right on the bank, then my drift trajectory there is set based on how I can keep my drift going so that I can repeatedly cast into that zone of depth or along the bank. So if I'm pounding banks in a lake, I'm going to try and uh, pick a bank that the wind will help me drift parallel to it and along that bank for as much of my drift as possible without having to reset my drift repeatedly. So a lot of times I'll try and pick a bank that where the wind is just barely angling into it, if possible, uh, instead of directly into it or off of it. Um, right, right. But try to get the most,
0: you most gotta, value out of each drift, yeah, right? I mean,
1: Exactly. Stay in that. If you find a zone where there's fish, you want to stay in that zone or on that drop-off or whatever for as long as possible. And right. then once you've found an area that, that there's fish or, you know, a type of water or bank or whatever there, where there's fish, then you can circle back around and you reset wherever that is and, you know.
0: Drain that well until it's
1: dry, and then go find the next well.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Andy Cordova in Reno, Nevada, he he says, uh, we do lock-style fishing using a trolling motor. This allows us to cover lots of water, but I always wonder how many hot spots we drift over for a few seconds and thus lose the opportunity to stay and fish the area more thoroughly. What would you do if you drift past an area with lots of fish?
1: Uh, well, basically what I just talked about. So this is pretty common. Yeah. This is one of the strategies in, in competitive fishing that's really important because a lot of times boats will see each other catching fish and they'll know where kind of hot spots or, uh, or areas of pods of fish are. And so there's rules that prevent you from cutting a drift off, but there's nothing that prevents people from circling in behind other boats. So a lot of times <laughs> one of the strategies is if if you find a hot spot you want to circle back around on that immediately if you get out of it, simply so that you stay on those fish and nobody else is able to come in and work your same pod. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, if there are fish around and, and I catch a bunch right away, normally what I'll do is I'll look to my sides and I will find a landmark on both banks or something I can, you know, look at that tells me exactly where I'm at. And then that way if the, I get out of that group of fish, um, you know, if I go five or ten minutes in it without fish, and before that I'd had hits every cast or every other cast, I'm going to circle back around find that same area again and hope that they're still there. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll also pay attention when I'm in a spot like that, look at the fish finder, see what's happened recently, what depth you're at, and then if there's been a depth change or something. And that can often give you an extra clue of where to go find fish in a similar area, even if you don't find them back in that same spot.
0: Yeah. John in Toledo, Ohio wrote in and asked, he says, I fish in the fall on a large uh, one-by-four-mile deep lake for brook trout in the Canadian Shield territory. Primarily, we fish from flow tubes. Uh, There is There are no flowing rivers. What's your best suggestion for finding fish? Are we back to that temperature? um kind of things we talked about at the beginning of
1: the show. Yeah, um fall with brook trout is is kind of a uh also has the element of you know, pre-spawn or spawning tied to it yeah. as well. So especially if there's no inlets that they're congregating around, a lot of times um what you'll find or what you're going to want to find then As long as the, you know, assuming since you're in Canada, the water's probably going to be plenty cold by the time you get into fall. So you're most likely going to be wanting shallow water or at least drop-offs from the shallow to deep where there's an abrupt change, um, which is an often area where I find brook trout uh, since they're fairly structure-oriented. So um, find shallows that have either lots of rocks or, um, like, gravel associated with them, rocks for structure or gravel for spawning. Or if you have uh, downed trees, those are really good places to find brook trout, especially in the fall uh, when it's uh, cold. And uh, beyond that, it's just a it's a guess and check, really. Uh, that's that's lake fishing and lock style fishing in general. It's educated guesses that you back up with success or failure, and then you make some more educated guesses. And and so it's it's one of those uh, styles of fishing that. It's going to take you a while to, to learn on lakes, period. But once you have experience, then a lot of times you can go back out and be consistently successful.
0: Yeah, um, Dino in Michigan has a, several questions here. I'll kind of roll through them. He wants to know if these tactics we've been talking about could be applied in the Great Lakes, uh, like in harbors or river mouths, water 5 to 10 feet deep, or 2 to 3 feet river mouths, um, and uh, can these techniques be used in those areas? I guess if you got to.
1: Absolutely. Correct, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. in fact, um, those are probably really great situations to use them in. Um, one of the amazing things about lock is when you get on a large body of water like that, it allows you to cover water, right? So I think one of the reasons a lot of people that fly fish lakes love to go to some small float tubable lake or something that they can cover in a day is that that mystery of of uh, that mystery of finding fish is easier to solve, right? But on those large lakes, it can be a daunting task if you're fairly stationary. And so being able to cover a lot of water through lock-style drifting can help you find, you know, areas where there are fish quicker than if you just anchor, cast, move, anchor, cast, move, anchor, cast, something like that, you know.
0: Okay, we're running long here, Devin, but let's spend the last few minutes here talking about um, the retrieves. Uh, I think we've covered everything else, but assuming we get a nice long cast out there, what do we need to know about bringing those flies back to the boat? So
1: um, there are... Uh, lots of different types of retrieves and, you know, variations within them. If, if I had to pick kind of – I'll just pick four that I I tend to like. So the okay. first would be just a real slow hand twist retrieve uh, or figure of a hand weave. Depends on who you talk to, how, you know, what they call it. But you're just rolling your fingers over and over and over to be able to hand twist your line back in. And that is a great retrieve for uh, kind of – small insects, like if you're fishing nymphs, or if the water's cold or really calm and you're fishing uh, lures, uh, and buggers, you know, things like that, etc. So uh, the hand twist retrieve is great. The second would be a, a hand twist or a slow strip retrieve for your basic retrieve, but then mixing it up with a strip-strip pause um, or a strip-strip-strip pause or, you know, some sort of weird variation in between. So I'll I'll hand twist a lot of times just so I can keep it in my mind consistent. I might count off like eight to ten hand twists, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then I'll go bam, 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 three really quick strips and then a dead pause. And a lot of times fish have just kind of been following your fly slowly when you're doing that hand twist and that really jumpy escape retrieve and the stop uh, gets them to commit. So that's a good one. Then just kind of a medium strip, like one to two feet long, is a good one. Fairly medium pace with the occasional, again, mix in some fast strips or a a pause. And then uh, the last one would be the roly-poly. And that's where you actually put the butt of your rod, the handle, under your armpit, and you take both of your hands and you strip you know, basically just with hands, and you don't have your line against the rod or anything. You're just rolling your hands hand over hand over hand. And um, you can, a lot of times the retrieve that will get me to, uh, the instance that will get me to start roly-polling is I'll go to change a line or something and I'll reel my flies in. And I may have spent the last 20 or 30 minutes without a fish, and then all of a sudden I get a fish on my on my reeling retrieve in. And the best way to imitate that steady, fast retrieve that you get when you're just reeling line in is with a roly-poly. And so um, when, uh, when fish are taking it like that, then a roly-poly is really the only way to get it done. And, in fact, when you go back to that year in Bosnia when I got the bronze medal on the lake, the only way that I caught fish, it was very difficult fishing. And I looked around, and in the first ten minutes there were three guys that had caught fish, and they were all roly pulley. And so I went to a roly-poly and a faster line. And the the only two fish I got in that session uh, came on a roly-poly. And it's a really effective retrieve, especially when the fish are aggressive and can just work better than anything else when when it's like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, And you talked uh, earlier about, and maybe we can just kind of provide a little bit more detail on on the the hang there at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I heard that, it reminded me of the figure eight fishing for muskie or pike, you know,
1: um, and, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: That by the vote take, <laughs> which can be pretty exciting.
1: Yes. So um, the first thing you need to do for a hang typically is have a hang marker just so that it's repeatable every time. A lot of uh, line manufacturers now, about 12 to 15 feet from the end of your line, they'll put a hang marker, um, which is for them, they usually just put like a, a fluorescent little six-inch piece of line, or they'll put a little extra layer of, of uh, material over the top so you get a bump. For myself, I will actually uh, layer a whole bunch of floss or thread over the top of my line and then superglue it in place, and that gives me a bump that will hit my guides and my hand to signal when I've, I'm getting to the end of my retrieve. And so when I see that hang marker coming in my guides, I know when I need to stop, especially if you're on a roly-poly retrieve or something you're going really fast, um, it can help to have something hitting those guides to remind you, oh, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm almost at the end of my retrieve. i, I got to get ready to stop. Um, so I, I put that about 15 feet from the end of my, my line, and then when that hang marker hits my hand, I just stop retrieving, and I extend that rod as far away from the boat as I can, and I start to lift up. And sometimes you'll just hold the flies there and just let them dangle dead still. Uh, other times, You'll raise them up and drop them back down, do a little jigging motion, especially if you're using tungsten flies. That can be a good way to do it because the tungsten flies will actually bring the flies back down to the fish's face. Or you'll raise up and stop for a few seconds, raise up, stop, and I might do that for all three flies where I raise up to where the top dropper is right below the surface then raise to where the middle dropper is below the surface and raise to where the point is below the surface. And some days the take will get 75% of your fish. Other days – fish aren't on it at all, and I don't catch a single fish the whole day on a, on a hang, but yeah. normally you at least get a few, and a lot of times those, uh, uh, many people are missing out on a lot of fish by not retrieving those last few feet and holding their flies at the end, because a lot of people I yeah. know on lakes, they do some roll cast pickup when they still have 10 feet of line out or something, uh, which makes it easier for them to pick up their cast, but they don't realize how many fish are following their flies to that point and they rip them out of their face.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Well, good. Um, well, I think that'll about wind it up for us tonight. And, um, we, uh, you gave us a ton of good information again, Devin, and always appreciate that. Um, stick with me for the next few minutes cause we're going to give away a few prizes here and, uh, including your DVD, uh, modern nymphing elevated beyond the basics. So, uh, uh, we'll also be giving away the Fly Fishers International membership and the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal subscription. So stick with us here for just a few more minutes, and we'll do just that. A quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find a link on our home page in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments, and uh, we'd, we'd really appreciate it. Um, so let's give away these prizes. Uh, winners from our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on a chance to, to win one of these uh, great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, uh, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first up, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Five Fishers International, And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org, a great uh, great organization to be part of and participate in. Whether you're fishing cold water, warm water, salt water, doesn't make any difference. Anywhere in the world, as their name says, they're international. So check them out, flyfishersinternational.org. So our winner for that is here, Run our database, and winner for that is Domingo Rodriguez, and uh, Domingo is from Colorado. So congrats, congratulations, Domingo, and uh, we'll get back to you with uh, how, how you can uh, get uh, hooked up and start your membership with FFI, so congratulations. Uh, now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Uh Amato is a a great publisher, publishing all kinds of books and periodicals on fly fishing, so check them out, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Dan Limbarger, Dan Limbarger, or Liebarger, I should say. And so congratulations, Dan, and I'm sure you'll enjoy that uh, fly fishing and tying journal. And now um, I'm going to ask a two-part question for uh... us to give away devon's new dvd modern nymphing elevated beyond the basics courtesy of tactical fly fisher and to see more about what devon's all about go to TacticalFlyFisher.com and check out uh... what he's up to there and the, the products and, and, and things that he has to offer like he said he kind of specializes in the competitive end of things which which means you just catch more fish so <laughs> check him out um, So the two-part question is, and you've got to enter your your answer on that form on our home page, fill that out with your name and your location. And uh, the question is, having to do with the terminal tackle, if you're doing a a three-fly rig, how many feet apart does uh, Devin usually put his flies? And what kind of leader does he use? Uh, Is he using, I'll just leave it at that, what kind of leader is he using? And, uh, he was pretty specific. So, give us some answers on that. You get them both right. You're the first one in here. Uh, you'll get, uh, um, you'll get Devin's, uh, DVD. So, Devin will just hang out here for just a minute and, uh, give people the time to type things up. And see if we can't get a winner here. Okay, let's go, guys, gals. <laughs> is, uh, Apparently, there no we go. <laughs> Well, we got, um uh, check a couple more here. Okay, it looks like uh, we got a couple in here. Chaz uh, gave us uh, five to six feet. That's correct. Uh, Maxima and 3X. That's not what I was looking for. Uh, Phil McCartney did write in. He said a flat leader and uh, five feet apart. So I'm going to give it to uh, give it to Phil here. And um, Phil's a long-time listener and many times wins. So <laughs> good for him. So that that kind of kind of hit it on the that answer correctly wouldn't you think Devin?
1: yeah uh Chaz's answer is pretty good too uh either one of them would work mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: okay um yeah i was going for the flat versus a tapered leader so um, there you go um, that makes sense. yeah yeah um good okay well congratulations uh phil again send me your address and i'll pass it on to Devin. we'll get that uh get that dvd out to you or he may be sending you a link to uh online version, I think, too. So one, one of those ways. And, uh, hey, Devin, again, I appreciate you being on the show with us. Always a pleasure to talk to you and pick your brain. And uh, you've got a lot in there, so thanks for sharing.
1: Yeah, thank you, Roger. I appreciate being on again.
0: Great, great. Our next broadcast will be on September 19th, and 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. On that show, we'll be interviewing uh, Drew Chacon, and the topic for the show will be top saltwater the Drew, and that's, that means the flies for tarpon, bonefish, and permit. Drew is one of the top saltwater fly tires today. His innovative patterns and variations on old favorites catch fish, and that's what it's all about. In his recent three volume set of fly tying books, Top Saltwater Flies, Drew provides his top patterns for bonefish, permit, and tarpon. So join us to learn how Drew comes up with his designs and his specific techniques in tying flies that catch fish in the salt. We'd like to thank Flyfishers Fishers International, Amato Books, uh, Whipbrae Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Baja Fly Fishing uh, for sponsoring our show tonight. And uh, don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com. Make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.